Mass shooter in Lewiston, Maine, Robert Card, took a gun. He shot up a bowling alley in a bar and killed 18 people and injured 13 more. But Card was just simply living his truth. When you identify as a mass shooter, people should probably just respect your pronouns, homicidal and killer, and get out of the way. People didn't, so it's hardly his fault. He was born in the wrong body, and he desperately looked for help. And all he got was judgment from religious people who said, thou shalt not kill. It's a real shame he didn't identify as a woman because he would have received the same odd contemplative understanding from the media that the Nashville Christian shooter got. But after police said the suspect was transgender, one thing is clear. Tennessee's already under siege transgender community is terrified. Maybe you get the point. The culture war we've created intentionally with our silence has created the ecosystem for this kind of radical violence. Now, let me be really clear to argue that I am not saying that everybody should be homicidal maniacs based upon the way we are conducting culture in the present. But what I am saying is those of you who want to blow me off as exaggerating or disregarding the mental health of this man, I want you to think for just a moment about the culture and what we're telling people these days. Card is not doing anything logically inconsistent with the worldview espoused in some of the biggest issues of our time. We're perfectly happy to reclassify human beings in the womb in order to just kill them. We're perfectly happy to call the termination of life health care. We're seen as good and loving if we applaud other human beings when they mutilate their own bodies. We've stripped prayers and Bibles from our daily lives and from our institutions, including many churches, and we expect people to quickly find purpose in the monotony of life. This all springs from the secular nature of society. Strip away any transcendent meaning and value, and all you have is the now. Tell a group of people that they are nothing more than random happenstance, you know, colliding molecules, and they'll begin acting as if they don't really have meaning and ultimate purpose. The atheists will come along and try to refute this by saying something like, the promise of eternal life makes life meaningless, not atheism. If you give $100 and you have $6 million, you don't care. But if you give $100 to a person who has 50 cents, well, then they're grateful. By the very nature of something being infinite, it means that this life that we're living is totally meaningless. What does it matter if we're suffering, if we're dying? What does it matter if you pass someone on the street who's freezing to death? because they've got an eternity of bliss waiting ahead of them, um, provided they're a Christian. Well, here's the problem with that. The exact opposite is what's happening. Christians live their best life while, and statistically, they are happier than the average citizen. Just like this study from the NIH that religious people are happier, whereas the most secular generation, Gen Z, is more anxious, more depressed, and more suicidal. But do you blame them? You try swimming in the sewage that our culture has created from the day that you're born, and you see how you end up. A lot of people have been giving flack to a couple of young girls on TikTok because they've been complaining about their 9-to-5 job. I'm so upset. Oh, my God. You could argue that these women are being forced into the mold of men, and that's why it's backfiring. I'm open to that. You could argue that Gen Z is getting soft, sure. But you don't have any clue how you would respond if you had grown up as a young person in this post-Christian culture. You had the benefit of growing up in a culture that had some vestige of transcendent moral values. And I would argue that this is why atheism ultimately needs to nihilism. 
Now, of course, not everyone is going to go around killing people because they're secular atheists, but that's simply because we are rational creatures that do not live logically. If we did, we could look around and see incredible evil, immense pain and suffering, and if there is not a God and no ultimate justice, make the logical conclusion that we should end it all just to end the pain and heck, maybe even do some people a favor and end their lives in the process, but insert divine justice. And now we have a whole different way of viewing the world. Not only does it give you hope in this world, but also in the life to come. Simply put, some of our best minds knew well that happiness in life is directly connected to the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia, or that happiness is a sense of right belief in accordance with right action. Modern society has minimized or altogether eliminated right belief and told people to make up their own moral code or right actions, and it just doesn't work. Morality in the eye of the beholder leaves 18 dead and 13 injured in Maine. Best we rethink right belief in society and the separation of church and state so that we might actually get to right action in the first place. Otherwise, we may be wondering what the repercussions of the next mass shooter will look like. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to help support the show. You can do that by going to our Herbal Alchemy store. Once you go there, you can not only find great, all-natural health and beauty products, soaps, aftershave, even the things you put on your face that makes you look like a mud monster, whatever those things are called, they have those because my wife has put them on before. Uh, but they also have uh, health products like Arise that can help give you all natural energy. They have that and so much more. In order to see everything that they have, you need to go to the link in the description of this podcast or the link that's on the screen right now, where if you go and purchase some of these products, a percentage of those proceeds will go to help benefit indie thinkers. So go there right now, grab some great products that are totally woke free and help yourself and help the show. I want to reintroduce the shooter in Maine because I believe that there's a a couple of things that we can learn about what just took place over there, especially in light of the usual kind of leftist talking points whenever any mass shooting uh, happens. Now, of course, we don't get this whenever it's in Chicago or in other major big cities, so I shouldn't say whenever any mass shooting happens. It's typically only when it's like a white guy with an AR because that fits the narrative. Uh, but whenever that happens, what we often get is condemnation about guns and condemnation about prayers. And I can't think of a greater defense for both of those things than what we just saw in Maine. So let me explain. So David Hogue, who is of course an anti-gun advocate, was quick to come out and say, if you wanna stop these shootings, you need to make sure that guys don't ever have a gun and then they can't do this kind of thing. Well, really, how might you do that? Maybe you would do that by making sure that you take all guns away from people, which maybe is what he's after in the first place. Even if he's not, maybe you would implement something like, I don't know, a yellow flag law, which was already in place in Maine. See, this mentally insane person or demon-possessed person uh, got this gun in violation to existing laws. I would love to know what laws we can make that would actually make sure that this never happens again. So for instance, you might say, well, if we just eliminate ARs, well, then why wouldn't a handgun do the exact same thing? Of course, it's just going to kill people or people more slowly um, or even slower. Maybe you want to get rid of all guns. If we follow this logic to its logical conclusion, 
Maybe we need to make sure that somebody who wants to kill somebody doesn't get a knife because he could easily kill people with a knife. Does that mean we eliminate all knives from all people at any point in time? So what would keep a madman from grabbing a knife and killing people? And what would keep a madman from doing something just genuinely evil if not people who are legal gun owners. So when a guy goes around rampaging through the street, shooting people, I would think the best solution for that outside of that person not being insane uh, would be that a legal gun owner be there to stop someone like that. It doesn't often happen because we haven't really created a culture of legal gun ownership in many cities, especially up in the Northeast. And perhaps that might actually have been a deterrent here. Um, needless to say, I, I do know this, that we want to demonize guns, but we also want to oddly demonize prayer when we're dealing with people who obviously have serious, serious issues of the, of the heart and the, and the mind. And so odd, oddly enough, prayer is often lumped in together with hatred of guns at this time because the nihilistic atheist, and again, I repeat myself, kind of leftist out there will say, you can keep your prayers to yourself. We need to do things that will actually save people. Well, I happen to believe that prayer can save people, and it can do that in a number of ways. Before I get to that, let me just say this. Your odd hatred toward prayer is kind of strange because what Christians typically mean when they say thoughts and prayers is they mean that they want to offer their, their sentiment of condolences to people who are struggling right now, that we want to say we're sorry that you're going through this. I know it may be odd for you to hear the word prayer since you've never done it, um, but if you've never done something, maybe you should try it before you knock it or at least not pretend you know what you're talking about when, uh, when the subject is brought up. But suffice to say, by and large, the vast majority of Christians mean, hey, we just want to offer our condolences. But um, beyond that, the idea that we need prayer in these kind of situations is really, really important. Here's why. If prayer is as effective as the Christian believes, then praying for these individuals who have these kind of wicked, tormented spirits where they hear voices and all other kinds of things, you may not believe that's demonic, but prayer couldn't hurt in that situation, I don't think. Suffice to say, I think prayer is a good remedy for some, some of the soul issues that we're seeing right in front of us. You can keep on trying to dope people up, but there's all sorts of, of repercussions for that kind of thing as well that, of course, Big Pharma isn't willing to talk about and the news media isn't willing to talk about because they get so much money from Big Pharma. But doping these people up isn't working, guys. The more drugs we put them on, the more these mass shootings tend to rise. And isn't it interesting that as people become less religious, more mass shootings are starting to happen? Beyond that, prayer, even if you don't believe in its efficaciousness to, for a guy like this mass shooter, maybe you believe in it for yourself. If we can't pray the devil out of that guy, perhaps we can pray for good aim if we hold close to the idea that legal gun ownership is actually something that can be valuable in these kind of situations. So if, you don't, if you're not praying for this individual to get right, maybe you can just pray for accurate aim. Needless to say, let's jump into uh, another story because I want to take us to the Southern Baptist Church because they've been under fire a lot lately for some indiscretions and for uh, supposedly covering up uh, sexual activity, sexual assault, and sexual abuse in some of their churches. And just recently, it was revealed that the SBC and some other institutions within the SBC um, filed an amicus brief to try to keep sex abuse victims from, from suing the institution. So here's an article from the Christian Post. 
SBC entities stirred disagreement by filing amicus brief to oppose extending liability in sex abuse cases. Survivors of sexual abuse and their advocates in the Southern Baptist Convention have accused the denomination of betraying victims after it was revealed that lawyers for the denomination along with the SBC Executive Committee in Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Lifeway Christian Resources filed an amicus brief earlier this year opposing legis legislation that would allow child sex abuse survivors to sue non-perpetrator third parties retroactively. Okay, so essentially what that means is that if you had no, if you had no connection necessarily to this sexual uh, uh, abuse abuser and victim, you can still be sued. So let's just say there was a kid that was sexually abused at the, at the church and you didn't know about it. And so the family decides to sue the sexual abuser. You can also sue the institution. So that's essentially what's going on here. Now, the accusation comes more than a year after SBC leaders said they were grieved after an independent investigation from Guidepost Solutions found the denomination's leadership had mishandled sexual abuse allegations treated victims and advocates engaged in an abusive pattern of intimidation and repeatedly resisted reforms aimed at making their churches safer, largely to avoid liability. In a statement to the Christian Post on Friday, the SB said it had to join the brief to protect the entity's legal and fiduciary interest and clarified that the trustees were not involved in making the decision, as many revealed on social media that they did not know about the document and were vehemently opposed to it. Now, first off, let me just state that whoever abuses, especially a child, um, or even really any sexual abuser deserves to burn in hell, and that is exactly what's, what's coming to them. So I don't want to be misunderstood that I believe the SBC has an obligation to make sure that they make things right with the family, that they make sure that they take whatever necessary effort that this will never happen again, that they take those steps. Uh, it is their responsibility to do that. However, what I do want to argue is something that is probably going to be misunderstood. So that's why I wanted to preface it with the burn in hell comment. Um, it's going to be, what I'm going to say is about to be misunderstood because I'm actually going to side with those who filed the amicus brief and just say this, that ultimately suing the institution of the, the, the church or the denomination or even more fully, like how far does this go? You know, you see, sue Lifeway Resources because the person that was in a Bible study on the book of Ruth or something like that, somehow that plays into the sexual abuse and uh, now you can sue Lifeway Resources. The problem with that is that that doesn't actually root out the kind of sexual abuser and, and it places responsibility on the people who may not necessarily be responsible. Now, let me be clear. If the SBC or the church involved knew anything about the sexual abuse, tried to cover it up, tried to um, blackmail the families, tried to pay off the families or anything like that, or refused to take a criminal action to the authorities, which is under scripture what they're supposed to do, Romans 13. Uh, Romans 13 actually is not an admonition against culture war, uh, but more an admonition towards uh, understanding that if you're an evildoer, you have something to, to fear when there is a, a good and righteous authority. So needless to say, my argument is just simply that suing an un, uh, unassociated party that has no, that had no knowledge about the event or didn't, it wasn't responsible in trying to hide the event or anything, or, and they didn't perpetrate the event, to sue them actually doesn't do anything other than to turn this into a free-for-all sue frenzy against third-party institutions. Now, again, if you can argue in a court of law that the SBC or the church is liable for something that they did, well, then this is fair game. And the amicus brief would have nothing to do with that. An amicus brief can't 
undermine criminal law. If these institutions did something criminal, then they deserve to be held accountable. However, if they did not, then I believe that this amicus brief will essentially just do this. It will just protect these entities from frivolous lawsuits. And that I think is important because if you actually care about sexual abuse victims, if you care about people who have been burned by churches that didn't handle these things well, then what you will want is you will want justice. You will want the people who are responsible to be held responsible and not the people who aren't responsible at all. That seems more like a money grab than it is an actual attempt to trying to hold people responsible for, uh, for criminal activity. So again, I would just simply argue this, that protecting a third party from frivolous lawsuits does not mean that they don't care about sexual abuse victims. I think those arguments are mutually exclusive. You can, you can do both of them. In other words, you can protect third-party entities from frivolous lawsuits while also trying to make sure that you protect victims, that you keep your churches healthy and safe and make sure that there are places where these things don't by and large happen. But if I'm to really talk about why I bring the story up is that the vast majority of people do not care about facts and nuance when it comes to sexual abuse. And I understand it's an emotionally charged topic. The problem with that is that there is a large portion of people online and in other places who believe that the church is some kind of um, vector of sexual abuse. Trust me, in the public school system, there have been more people who have been sexually abused than there is in the church. Look it up sometime. I know you love to hate on Christians, and I know you love to talk about the Catholic Church and altar boys and all that stuff, and it becomes a convenient and you think clever way to undermine the church. Uh, but actually, it's really kind of stupid because although whenever it happens, it's bad, even if it happens one time, it's bad, but the number of people who are actually sexually abused at churches is sparingly little. And so it seems more like a slander against the church than it is actually helpful to root out sexual abuse or to actually perceive that you care about people who have become victims of sexual abuse. If you really care about them, and I guess this goes back to this, to this amicus brief, if you really care about them, you will want the people who are responsible to be held responsible. And that's it. I guess all I'm saying with a heart toward those who are in the community of people who have been abused and hurt in this way, whether inside the church or not, all I'm saying is in the midst of that kind of emotional pain, it's easy to point fingers and blame others who may not be responsible for that kind of pain. And we need to make sure that we're keeping truth at the center of the pursuit and making sure the people responsible for these things are held accountable for, for what they've done. And it only muddies the water if we're going to try to accuse people who actually are not responsible for it at all. But this also goes back to one further thing about, since we started the show with guns and even opened the show with this shooter in Maine, is it is problematic to say the least, right, to blame an institution for the actions of an individual. This goes to the kind of things that we hear about, maybe we should blame parents of kids who become mass shooters and maybe they should be sued or maybe even criminally charged. Or maybe even we should uh, sue the gun manufacturers for the guns that are being used. I mean, is that, does that really make sense? Does that really put responsibility where responsibility lies? And my, my argument to that is no, what that becomes is a witch hunt. And for those who believe like the Christian fundamentalists are a bunch of witch hunters, uh, make sure that you're not doing the same thing. Uh, if you really want justice to be served, you will want the truth and nothing but the truth if you can handle it. And speaking of which, let's jump into our final segment, Bible study with Democrats. Oh God of pronouns. 
It never ceases to amuse me the way in which the modern left or more broadly progressives can try to fit their views into Christian scripture. Now, that may look like um, a really rather large man trying to fit into lingerie, and often does at some of these churches. Um, and as obtuse as that is, that, that's often what we get from conversations with people like Tim from the New Evangelicals, and that's why they show up on this portion of the show very often. And they're doing it here again because Tim from the New Evangelicals was on Ruslan's show. Now, Ruslan happens to be a more kind of conservative thinker and evangelical, whereas Tim even though he says he's a part of the new evangelical movement, isn't a part of a new movement and isn't part of an evangelical movement. He's just simply part of a progressive Christian movement that's founded upon uh, liberal theology. So needless to say, I didn't have the stomach to listen to most of the conversation because frankly, I'm gonna tell you, I don't know that Ruslan is the best person to have this kind of conversation. He's great with kind of Christian pop culture, but he's not like a Christian thought leader, even though he's got probably one of the most um, prominent Christian YouTubers, to, to, to say the least. But, but I think the conversation needed to be had with somebody that could potentially, um, could potentially offer a little bit more in a conversation like this. But needless to say, um, obviously, the bigger issue that induces the gag reflex is, is, is Tim and the ways in which he approach, approaches some of the subjects of a, of a biblical nature. And so I just want to simply bring up one of those issues, which is a conversation that these two men had about heaven and hell, who goes there, what it is. And I think there's some interesting insights that we can draw from that. So here's a clip from Ruslan's show where Tim from the New Evangelicals is talking about heaven. Check it out. Myself. Mm -hmm. Besides, I mean, there's, you know, of course, biblical things that I don't think we need to get into for now. But ultimately, I told myself, if I die and get to, and I get to see God, and God's like, hey, sorry, you were too inclusive of people. You were too loving. You were loving your neighbor in a way that was just over the top, and you just were too graceful, so you're going to go to hell. It just is what it is. Like, I made peace with that. If that's, if that's the take, then it is what it is. But I just don't see that being a reality. All right, that's enough of that. Anyway, all right, so a couple of things about that, and this is going to go really, really quick because we don't have to take much time. Um, what Tim just got done describing in terms of what uh, what heaven should look like. Heaven should be a place that is accepting and heaven should be a place that's very, very tolerant and that if you're overly accepting and overly tolerant of things, then that makes you overly graceful and that's how you get to heaven. I'll argue that that is essentially what he's saying, even though you may argue, he's just saying that he, if he makes the mistake of being that way, then fine, hell is is the answer. But do you really think that's what God's going to say? That, I know that's what he's saying, but he's also, by logical implication, saying that that is essentially what gets you into heaven. So needless to say, the, the, the problem with that, and we'll get to that in a moment, the problem with his overall assertion here is that when he describes heaven, he's actually describing the other place. See, hell is a place that is enlarging itself daily, as the Bible tells us, and hell is a place of full acceptance, and it's a place of full tolerance. It's not a place where you come along and say, hey, maybe chopping off the body parts of a small child is not the best idea uh, on the planet, that that might actually be immoral. See, hell is a place of unlimited tolerance. This is why tolerance is not actually a biblical virtue, because there is clearly things that as a conscientious believer and as a Bible believer, 
there are clearly things that you should not tolerate. You shouldn't uh, tolerate the abuse of children. You shouldn't uh, tolerate the abuse of women. You shouldn't tolerate any kind of abuse. And you can save sarcastic remarks about how individuals in the church have done that in the past. Let's just focus on Jesus, friend, for a moment. Let's not chase the rabbit. And let's just focus on Jesus for a moment and realize, hey, there are some things that Jesus had some really strong and sharp things to talk about. Two of them that I'll bring to you now, which Tim himself constantly wants to defend and in context is defending here because he is defending the right of the uh, homosexual to do his thing, whatever that is. Okay. And so the reason that um, we need to be mindful of how a Christian approaches these things is because a Christian should base their views on scripture and Jesus specifically spoke about homosexuality and specifically spoke about transgenderism, at least in the way that we're seeing it in the present. Let me explain that because we hear this very often. Jesus never talked about smoking crack, so probably it's, it's okay. Uh, Jesus never talked about smoking marijuana, and the only thing that he did say was that every herb in the field is good. And so that has to include smoking dope so that we can act like Snoop Dogg and smell like hell uh, before we get there. Needless to say, all that kind of joking aside, uh, Jesus has two things to say about homosexuality, or he has something to say about homosexuality and something to say about transgenderism. Uh, more broadly, first he says this, that what God has put together, let no man put asunder. In other words, he's talking about the marital union that God defined in the book of Genesis between a man and a woman, and he says, let no man break it apart. So, what God is saying there is that if you do that, you are violating scripture and you're violating the teaching of Jesus. All right. So then also Jesus says this about kids. And this is where I bring transgenderism into it, because this is something specifically that targets children, especially. And Jesus said, if you do anything to harm a child, that it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and that you be thrown into the sea. So if you harm a child with any of this supposed uh, gender affirming care, you're doing something that Jesus said carries with it a pretty stiff punishment. All that to say this, when Tim is explaining what heaven looks like, he's actually explaining hell because hell is a place of unlimited tolerance and acceptance. Whatever you want to do will get you there. But on the other hand, heaven is a place of perfection, a place of moral goodness and moral purity. That's why tolerance and goodness cannot be the thing that actually gets you to heaven, your own goodness. I mean, so, soteriology from a Christian perspective actually is based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are Christians, you may not even know what that means, but essentially we say we look to the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. But more importantly, what we don't do is we don't do what Tim is doing, which is to say that my capacity to love will be the thing that actually puts me in heaven. If I'm sufficiently loving, then God will welcome me through his doors. Well, I mean, that sounds good, and it has the patina of, of, of nicety, but it is actually really ridiculous. Like, first of all, Tim doesn't love Christian nationalists. He doesn't love authentic, true Bible-believing Christian evangelicals. Tim says he wants to hold space for marginalized communities, and he wants to make sure that there's not a single person that's ever dehumanized, but actually Tim is very happy to dehumanize fundamentalist Christians and Christian evangelicals all the time. And he's perfectly happy to do so at the expense of kids who have fallen into the trap of the transgender cult. 
So all that to say, I mean, we're all hypocrites in one way or another. You can say that about me too, but that's the problem then, right? Is that our love isn't the thing that actually puts us in heaven. Our capacity to love is always flawed, and that's what puts us in the category of desperately needing God in order to get to heaven. Then one final thing here. The, the real problem with what, what Tim is saying, and this is the problem I see very often, we have no authority if we're not making rational arguments or from a Christian perspective especially, making rational arguments from a biblical perspective. I would love to know by what metric Tim thinks people go to heaven. I would love to know by what metric we judge who Jesus even was if we're not going to use a biblical standard. The thing that bothers me the most whenever I hear Tim talk is that there is a large amount of Jesus talk with very few number of Bible passages present. I mean, honestly, how do we truly suppose to know a historical figure like Jesus if we don't go to the text that actually talks about his life and shares the things that he taught? If we don't do that, essentially what we're doing is we're creating a Jesus in our own image, but it's actually an idol. And that happens a lot, unfortunately. And Tim says it explicitly here, that he would rather go to hell than to have a heaven that he could create in his own image, where people are just loving enough or loving in the way that he thinks they should be, and then that's how they get into heaven. Graceful in the way that Tim defines graceful, and that's how they get into heaven. So this is a heaven of Tim's fabrication, and that's the heaven that he wants to go to, not the actual heaven. By the way, just quick side note uh, for those who are wondering, God is way better at heaven than we are, so best we kind of go with his definition of it. And again, here's the problem. This is a religious conversation about Jesus. I'm not even saying that everything the Bible says can be argued from a rational, logical basis. I I think that's a podcast for a different day. What I am saying is, is that you two guys, and specifically you, Tim, are the one who wants to have a religious conversation about the Bible, but then use nothing in the Bible to actually justify what you're saying. And that is on full display here in this conversation about what heaven is and what hell is. And let me just argue from a rational standpoint just for a moment as I close the show today. It's funny to me that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge the existence of hell until a Hitler shows up or until a guy like this shooter in Maine shows up. It's at that point in time where we see that this guy committed suicide. And he won't necessarily really pay for the consequences of his actions, the pain of these families that are left behind with these dead loved ones. He's never going to know how much that pain actually impacted people because he took the cheap, wicked, and weak way out by killing himself before he had actually really reaped the consequences of his actions. And so if you look at this life, outside of a eternal God and outside of a transcendent being who would create heaven and hell, then there really is no justice largely here on this earth. This creates a sense in which justice is nothing more than a social construct, maybe a social construct based upon our criminal justice system. And if that's true, then boy, we got a lot of work to do. However, insert the view of a transcendent eternal God, and now you have the basis for justice if not in this life, in the next life. And that's why hell is so important. If you truly believe that justice is a good virtue, maybe not the greatest of all virtues, maybe not even the top three, but if you truly believe that God is a God of justice and that 
if he is a good God, there must be justice, then that's when you need to start understanding that hell has a place in your framework, even if you don't like the word or you don't like to think about it. You might say, well, how can a loving God put somebody in hell? Well, how can a loving God not bring about justice for the families of those people who were killed by that main shooter? How can God let somebody like Hitler just get away with, with death? Isn't that too easy for that kind of maniacal, evil human being? Now, again, I'm not arguing the existence of hell. I'm merely arguing the reason for hell. Now, there's probably other arguments that could back up the existence of hell and all of that kind of stuff, but at least I'm just trying to say this. If heaven and hell exists, if God exists, it might be important to actually have an authoritative source that can help us understand what those things, who he actually is rather than merely our own personal opinion. And because of that, I have to say, the kind of people who espouse the views of Tim and others in the progressive Christian community, they desperately need Jesus. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for watching. If this was helpful for you, please comment down below, but you can also like and share and subscribe. And most importantly, you can go with God.